Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Good morning, Christ Church. It's such a joy to be with you this morning, even if over a live stream. For those I haven't met yet, my name is Jesse Pruitt, and I am excited this morning. Uh, to be delving into a fascinating story of the Tower of Babel. One of the interesting things about humanity, one of our interesting features, is our ability to make snap judgments and assumptions. Undoubtedly, it started as a survival instinct, giving us the ability to quickly deduce a dangerous situation. But even today, we make thousands of assumptions a day about people, places, or things, or situations we find ourselves in. And while many are correct, if we're honest with ourselves, we frequently make incorrect or distorted assumptions. Now, this is so common that it's even become part of our entertainment. If we look at the genre of comedy, miscommunication based on incorrect or distorted assumptions is often the basis for some of our most hilarious comedic situations. Think about your favorite sitcom or romantic comedy or any comedy in general. Undoubtedly, at some point, a character will misunderstand another. A character will make an assumption that will go unchecked and hilarity will ensue. One of my favorites is the classic sketch by Abbott and Costello, Who's On First? Now, you probably know this and it's kind of appropriate given that baseball season just started. Amen to that, yes. And the sketch unfolds as two individuals are having a conversation. And the first individual begins to talk about the local baseball team. And he assumes his compatriot knows exactly what he's talking about. And as he details the intricacies of the lineup, who's on first, what's on second, and I don't know playing third base, his partner completely loses it and becomes confused. And this assumption of communication and assumption of understanding leads and derails the entire conversation. These situations are funny, they make us laugh, because we've all been there. But sometimes and frequently, a distorted assumption can have devastating consequences. In 1912, we know of the construction of the ship Titanic. Now, the ship was designed and built to be the premier, the apex of luxury and cross-Atlantic travel. Among all of its features, it was assumed, most infamously, to be unsinkable. And in a sad twist of irony, the ship sunk on its maiden voyage. This assumption had led individuals to not take appropriate precautions. There weren't enough lifeboats. There weren't enough life vests. Some of the safety features were not tested. And 1,500 people, more than 1,500 people, lost their lives in one of the greatest and most tragic maritime disasters in world history. Distorted assumptions can have devastating and tragic consequences. This morning, we're going to look at a story about a community that has a distorted assumption, not about a person, a place, or a thing, or a situation they find themselves in, but about the God of the universe. And we're going to find in this story that it has devastating consequences for the community, and for the entirety of humanity. But before we dive into that story, would you pray with me? 
God, this morning, open our ears and hearts to receive a word from you. Open my lips to proclaim your word. Make these words not mine, but yours. God, move your spirit among us in this room and wherever people are listening to this, Lord. May we come to a deeper understanding of who you are. And may you point out and transform our distorted assumptions about you. In your holy name, amen. So this morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 11, and while you're finding it either in your bulletin or in a Bible at the front of the biblical text, I think it's helpful to really quickly survey where we've been so far. Genesis 11 is the climax to a section of Genesis 1 to 11 that is often called the primordial narrative. It is the section of text that looks at major themes from a universal perspective. We began with the story of creation a few weeks ago in Genesis 1 and 2 when God creates a perfect and good and structured order, a holy place. And we found that he places humanity in his creation, gives them his image and this responsibility to be his image bearers, his stewards of creation. But in Genesis 3, we learned a few weeks ago that our story took a dark turn. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and by taking the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, an act symbolic of an attempt to find morality for themselves, they broke the relationship with God and had devastating consequences for all of humanity. In chapters 4 to 11, look at what this human situation looked like. It looks, it, it, it examines what it looks like when humans are in control, and it is an unmitigated disaster. We began in chapter 4 with a situation between Cain and Abel, when Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel, and that single act of violence began a spread of violence throughout the whole world. And by Genesis 6, it had escalated to consume the entirety of creation. And then in Genesis 6 to 9, we get the story of the flood, a text we covered a couple weeks ago with Dr. Walton, and we talked about how the flood is a cosmic reset, where God comes down, undoes, and restores creation. He takes a particular group of humans, the family of Noah, and representatives of all the animal life on earth, and begins a new creation. He establishes a new covenant with these people and blesses them to fill the earth. And the question now becomes, what will this new humanity be like? Will they be like their ancestors and rebel against God, or will they finally obey and follow God? And Genesis 11 is our answer to this story, and it is not pretty. As we turn to this story, this is admittedly a weird text. If we read it from the modern Western perspective, we are probably going to get a little bit lost. I'll give you an example. When I first heard this story as a kid, my immediate thought was that these humans were trying to build a tower to somehow reach into the heavens. And of course, in my snot, my, my kitty snottiness, I assumed that these people were idiots. There's no way they can break even through the atmosphere. They'll run out of materials. They don't have the technology. And even if they make it high enough, they run out of oxygen. They can't make it to the moon, much less to God. 
And that's how I understood the story for so long. This is an act of pride for humans trying to rise up and take control from God. How foolish, right? The funny thing is, our ancient readers would have agreed with that. They would say, there's no way humans can get to God. That's not what's going on here, you fool. See, this story is a perfect example of the principle we heard about a couple weeks ago, that the Bible is written for us, but not to us. In order to understand this story, we have to read it in its ancient Near Eastern context. We have to understand the city and specifically the tower in the world of the ancient Near East. And so as we dive into the story, we're going to see a few clues that help guide our interpretation and our understanding of the structure. So we begin in verse 1. We find that the whole earth has one language and common speech. And then we hear about, which becomes important for the end of the story, and we hear about a group that migrates eastward. And they come upon a plain in the land of Shinar and decide to settle there. Now here is our first clue. The land of Shinar, the term here, is the Hebrew equivalent of the land of Sumer. Now think uh, the alluvial plain of southern Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, more like southeastern Iraq as the rivers flow into the Persian Gulf. This is the land that spawned the Sumerian Empire, the Akkadian Empire, and perhaps most important, the Babylonian Empire. And that's our first clue, that we're not in the realm of Israel, we're not in Egypt, we're in ancient Mesopotamia. So we continue on. In verse 3, they say to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. So they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. This isn't just some passing note. This is important because it gives us our second clue. You see, these building materials are not used in most of the ancient world. Baked brick technology is specific to the world of ancient Mesopotamia. Because of a lack of stone, they were forced to take mud and learn to fire it and make it sturdy. And it was used in important civic and cultic constructions. So again, we have to kind of hone in our senses here that we're in the world of ancient Mesopotamia. So we continue on. In verse 4, they say, Come, let us build a city for ourselves and a tower with its head in the heavens. And here we come to the important part of our narrative, this tower. And this becomes the whole point on which the narrative turns. In order to understand this passage, we have to understand what this tower is. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, a generic, the, the term for tower is a generic term. It can mean any tall building. It could be a defense tower, a lookout structure, and even a fortress temple in the town of Shechem. But remember that we're not just anywhere. We're not in Israel, we're not in Egypt, we're not in Syria. We're in Mesopotamia. So to understand this tower, we have to look for examples in the architecture of Mesopotamia, of Babylon. And what do we find? The structures that define the architecture, that stand out, that have their head in the heavens? It's the ziggurat. Now, if you don't know what a ziggurat is, I encourage you to Google it really quickly. There are some pictures. They're not exactly the, the best, but at least give you an idea of what we're talking about. So I'll give you a chance to pull out a phone or a computer, and it's spelled Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T, and Google Spell Check will help you find it eventually. And a ziggurat is a step pyramid 
that is often accompanied and features a staircase or a ramp and has a small room at the top. So think pyramid, steps on the side, large ramp going up. And these structures, they dominate the architecture of ancient Mesopotamian cities. Think about if you look at the layout of Madison, how we have all these buildings and in the center is the Capitol building. The dome as it rises, this would be the ziggurat in ancient Babylon, Ur, Sippur, etc. And they're part of the cultic world of the ancient Near East. Now, what are they for? Now, immediately you might be thinking, well, it's got to be a tomb, right? I mean, in Egypt, that's what they're used for. But as we've done excavations and studied these structures, we don't find any burials. And curiously, they're not even used as temples. See, there are buildings at the base that are used as temples, and that's where all of the sacrifices happen, where all of the festivals happen. But we have no indication that any kind of sacrifice occurs on these ziggurats. And really, to understand these structures, we have to look at their names. Probably one of the most famous examples is the ziggurat in the city of Babylon, important for our passage today, as we'll find out. And the name Etimenanki here means the temple at the foundation of heaven and earth. It's a connection point between the two realms. Notably, and this is kind of cool as well, the structure, the temple next to it at its base, the temple from Marduk, Esagila, notably means a temple with its head in the heavens, which should set off alarm bells based on our passage a few minutes ago. If we look further at the ziggurat at Sippar, another ancient Near Eastern city, we find one that says it's named the temple of the stairway to pure heaven. Now, the Zeppelin probably got their name for their famous song from this. These are stairways up into the heavenly realms. These are gates for the gods to come down, enter into the temple complex, and receive worship, and thereby bless the city. These are ancient highways to heaven. So they build this structure. They build it, they build a temple, and they expectantly wait for God to come down. And guess what? He does. In Genesis 5, Yahweh comes down to see the city and the tower that the mortals had built, but rather than participate in the worship, he gets angry. He says, look, what are they doing? They're one people, they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they're going to do. And he decides that he needs to come down and confuse their language and scatter them so that they will stop making this tower. So now that we know what this tower is, our next question is, why does God get so angry about it? What have they done that has elicited this response from God? Now, if you read it just from a modern perspective and without the background of the ancient Near East, we might think this is an issue of pride, right? They decided that they want to make a name for themselves. But that's not really what's going on here. We don't get any indication that their act is a prideful one. The idea of making a name for oneself is just that you want to be remembered. It's a common desire in the world of, of the ancient Near East that either through having children or building structures that you won't be forgotten. We even find later that, that various people in the biblical text, Abraham, David, Moses, they make names for themselves. So while pride might be part of it, it's not really what's driving the story. 
Okay, what about a second opinion? Disobedience for not scattering. This is a common one and one that I've heard many, many times. That the idea is that humanity was supposed to fill the earth, but by staying in this one site and building this city, they're disobeying God's commands. But once again, that's not really what's going on here. You see, the command to fill the earth doesn't mean to scatter. It's a blessing to have children. And if you look at the surrounding text of the genealogies, they're doing that just fine. They're having children. They're having descendants. We have nations that are being born. And scattering isn't really the purpose. It's more the byproduct of what happens. And it's mostly an ironic twist on what the people had hoped they would be doing by building the city. So while that might be part of it, it's not exactly what really ticks God off here. So once again, we have to delve into the world of the ancient Near East and understand it's the ziggurat that is the problem. And more specifically, it's the system, the religious system that the ziggurat represents. I said earlier that the purpose of the ziggurat is to invite the god or goddess down to receive the sacrifices of the people and then bless the earth. This is what one scholar has called a divine symbiosis. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You feed me, you give me wine, you anoint my statue with oil, you clothe me, and I'll give you rain and crops or whatever else the God is supposed to do. It's the ancient equivalent of a quid pro quo agreement. Now the danger here is that it imagines that God has needs, that he has to be fed and clothed, and most importantly, that he can be manipulated and bribed. It is ultimately a humanization of the divine. It is making God in the image of a human rather than human in the image of God. It is making God like one of us. And if we read the rest of the biblical text, we find that God doesn't play by those rules. He doesn't have needs. We find this throughout the Psalms that God doesn't need to be fed, doesn't need to have wine, doesn't need to even sleep. Sacrifices don't feed the God of the Bible. We also find that sacrifices aren't even the primary avenue for blessing. They exist within the Israelite religious system to make atonement for sins, as object lessons for the importance of sin, and as a way to come together and to worship with God in the community, but they don't necessarily lead always to blessing. In fact, the prophets make this point very clear that it's not sacrifice, but obedience. In one of the most famous passages in the book of Micah, we have this discussion where uh, the, the character in the story asks, with what shall I come before the Lord in Micah 6 and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give even my firstborn for my transgression or the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, if we look at the ancient world, the average ancient Near Eastern person would say, absolutely, that's wonderful. Bring the burnt offerings, bring the calves, bring the thousands of rams. And if you're really desperate, offer your children as sacrifices to the gods. But we find in a twist at the end, the prophet condemns this way of thinking. He says, has God not told you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, 
to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So the Israelite God calls his people to an entirely different way of thinking. He doesn't need sacrifices, and he actually calls you to a greater degree of obedience and morality, and he doesn't even need a house. He doesn't need a place, a location to interact with his people. We find this throughout the biblical text. When David decides he's going to build a temple in 2 Samuel 7, and when Solomon actually dedicates the temple in 1 Kings 8, we find this constant theme that God doesn't need a house. He's the king of the universe. He's the God of the whole world. He does allow them to build a temple and decides he's going to meet his people there. But he doesn't need to do that. And one of the coolest twists of scripture, when we get to the New Testament and the new kingdom reality, we have the church. Where God doesn't need a structure, he needs people. And we become the church, the body of Christ. And God lives and dwells in all of us. This is a complete and total undoing of the ancient Near Eastern and really ancient way of thinking. I mentioned that this is the climax of what we've seen in Genesis 1 to 11. And it's important because this whole section is ultimately a rebuttal of the common thinking of the ancient world. You see, in creation, in the ancient Near East, the creation narratives envision a competition between the gods. That some gods fight other gods and somehow out of that conflict, the world becomes. But in Genesis 1 and 2, we see a God who gets actively involved in creation, who speaks into existence. There's no conflict. There's no war. The very structures of the universe aren't built out of the byproducts or the, the bodies of the gods. God speaks it into existence. When we think about humanity in the ancient world, humans were envisioned as slaves, as mere servants of the gods, and that's it. But in Genesis 1, God creates humanity and gives them his image. Not just the king, not just a priest, but all of humanity, male and female, are created in the image of God and given the responsibility to be his stewards and priests in the world. We get to the event of the flood. In the ancient world, the flood is envisioned as the plan and the foolish plan of a particular God to silence humanity so he can get some sleep. Because he's sick of our noise. And the only way it's thwarted is because a trickster God decides that he's going to undo this plan. And he builds an ark and saves a few humans. But in the biblical text, the flood is an intentional plan of God to restore creation. And that same God who restores creation also delivers Noah and his family and makes a covenant and desires to know and be known by them. Now we come to this particular passage where we see the very symbols of the ancient way of doing religion, of interacting with God, and God completely undoes it. And we get to the end of the story, and after God scatters humanity and confuses their language, we get the ultimate slap in the face. In verse 9, we get a city naming. And it says, Therefore the city was named Babel, for there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth. Now here the, the biblical text envisions the city of Babel, or Babylon, as being named in a wordplay on the word confused, Balal. It becomes a symbol of confusion and foolishness. 
Now in ancient Akkadian, in the language of Babylon, the name is named Bab Eli, the gate of the gods. Here celebrated for the ziggurat that stands at its center. And in this act of renaming, God says, no, no. You think this is how you get to me, how I come to you, this gate, this ziggurat, this stairway to heaven? I don't play by those rules. And more importantly, I'm going to rename your city after confusion. A distorted assumption of their way of thinking about God. Now, we back away from this story. We back away from the undoing of the way that this community thinks about God. We find that we learn that God is a God beyond our human expectations. And honestly, that is a great and good thing. You see, the Babylonians, they're hoping to bring God down to get blessings. They want crops. They want rain. They want fertility. They want children. They want basic human needs. But the God of the Bible has a deeper and better plan. He cares about those things. We see that throughout Scripture. But as we begin to move through the book of Genesis, we see a new movement. In the very next chapter, God will call a man named Avram, later known as Abraham. And he makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, if you'll follow me and settle in this land, I'll give you children and descendants. All the nations of the earth will bless you, and I'll give you a great name. The very thing the Babylonians were hoping to get, Abram gets. As we continue on in this story, God continues to interact with his people. He continues to reveal himself to his people through the Exodus, through Sinai and the giving of the law, through the nation of Israel and their kings, and then ultimately through the giving of his son, Jesus. God coming down in the form of a man to interact and to know and be known by his people. So whereas the Babylonians wanted blessing, God begins salvation. And a salvation that undoes all of the problems of Genesis 3 to 11, the sin that began with Adam and Eve in the garden, is now undone by a beautiful, salvific plan and covenant with God. And in one of the coolest twists of irony in the biblical text, we even get the reversal of Babel. In this new kingdom reality with God, we see that God undoes the very things that divide us. In Matthew 28, the gospel passage we read this morning, often known as the Great Commission, we see in verse 19 the command to go and make disciples of all nations. Whereas languages had scattered and divided the people of the ancient world, God now undoes it and commands his church to be a church beyond borders and languages. And in one of the coolest events in all of scripture, an event that we celebrate every year at the Feast of Pentecost in Acts 2, we find that the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples and they begin to speak in other tongues, other languages in Jerusalem. And in verse five, we find that there were many dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews from every nation in the known world. We have Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia. Again, should pick our ears a little bit. Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, all parts of the Roman Empire are gathered into one and they hear the preaching of the gospel in their own language. 
What had once been a source of confusion now becomes an avenue to bring people to Christ. And this ultimately climaxes in the beautiful scene in the book of Revelation when before the throne of God, individuals from all nations, tribes, and languages are worshiping God together. You see, God is a God beyond our human expectations. He will not bow down to our image of him. He will blow past all of our expectations. And this is a great and good thing. So what do we do with this? How do we respond to a passage like this? I think first we reflect on our own image of God, our own assumptions about the God of the universe. Now, we ask ourselves, do we make God in our own image? Do we humanize God? Now, I don't want to make any assumptions about you in the audience, but I sincerely doubt that any of you have a problem with a ziggurat in your backyard or have a desire to offer sacrifices to try to bribe God. But we do the same thing as the Babylonians. You see, we often force God to bend to our beliefs. We imagine God as if he's one of us, right? Rather than being conformed to the image of God, we conform him to our desires and our beliefs. Maybe like the Babylonians, you put limits on the power of God. Maybe you even think, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously, that he can be manipulated. That if I give here or do this or do that, then I'll somehow get what I want. If I pray the right prayer, say the right thing, sing the right song, I'll get what I want from God. And we treat God as if he's a genie in a lamp. Ultimate cosmic power, but confined to the itty-bitty living space of our expectations. But maybe that's not your problem. Maybe you don't have a problem imagining God as having unlimited power. Maybe you imagine a God that is too big for your problems. A God that is so powerful and so magisterial over the universe that he can't possibly care about my wants and needs or my problems or my issues. And as much as a limitation on God's power is a distorted image of God, so also is the imagination that God doesn't care about us. See, these are both two sides of the same coin. They're both distorted assumptions. God is all-powerful. He's the creator of the universe, but he's also the God that came down in the form of a man, that came down and lived among us and desires to love and know each of us individually. So we reflect on our own assumptions about God. And then we seek to encounter God. And there are a variety of ways that we can do this, uh, but I want to focus on two this morning. The first is we encounter God through his son. I mentioned earlier that, that the incarnation of Jesus and the, the, the death and resurrection are the ultimate revelations of the nature of God to humanity. And we first come to God through his son. Now, if you haven't done that this morning or are new to this whole Christianity thing, and you have questions about this, please reach out to, to any of us, to Scott, to Caitlin, to myself. We'd be glad to talk with you more about this. But for those of us who've been in this maybe for a little bit or even for a while, 
one of the, the best ways we can encounter God is through his word. See, the biblical text, these books, are the ultimate revelation, the self-revelation of God to his people. And we can encounter God by going through his word, both on our own individually, but also in community. Now, if you've been with us for a while, this is one of the purposes of our church here at Christ Church Madison. We are a church that is committed to a phrase you've probably heard a dozen times, to word and sacrament. We believe we encounter God through his table, through his words. It's why we use liturgy every Sunday, why we begin our service with readings from the Psalms, from the Gospels, from the New Testament, and even from the often overlooked Hebrew Bible. And our purpose here is to be a safe place. We can bring our questions, our doubts, our worries, our concerns, and even our distorted assumptions about God and work through them together and commit ourselves to knowing God more deeply and more clearly. So this morning, Christ Church, may we commit ourselves to the study of God's word, to encountering God, to surrendering ourselves to his image and to gain freedom from our assumptions, our incorrect and distorted assumptions about God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.